0: It's Thursday, December 17th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist I'm, Mike Pesca. Here in the Northeast, we've been hit by winter snow. Not a blizzard, maybe a nor'easter. Though everything's a nor'easter. I don't know, is there a scale? Not quite nor'easter strength. I think they make it up. You know what else they make up? Branding. Every storm's named these days. Winter Storm Gale is one for the history books. Winter Storm Gale. That's this one. Gale. Which may I suggest, may not be the best name for a weather phenomenon, because gale is already the name of a weather phenomenon. A gale warning is issued when sustained surface winds of 34 knots, which I don't have to tell you is 39 miles per hour, or 47 knots, 54 miles per hour. Simple rule, add five or maybe seven. I'm not here to understand knots. When winds of that speed occur, a developing gale, refers to, well, an unpublished Judy Bloom novel, but also an extra tropical low or an area in which gale force winds of 39 MPH and 54 MPH are expected. Okay, that's a gale. This isn't a gale. The following should be off the list of winter storms and hurricane names. Aurora, Misty, Sunny, Tempest, Sky, or Zephyr. Sorry, Zephyr Teachout, you get to stay, Zephyr. The weather doesn't. I'm also philosophically opposed to naming hurricanes that rhyme with the word hurricane. So hurricanes Dane, Blaine, Dwayne, Charlemagne, or Barack Hussein, sorry, you have to take a back seat. Barack, by the way, is said to mean lightning, but I'll allow it. I will allow it. But please, can we be a bit more detailed as we engage in this ridiculous project of naming every weather phenomenon? Not going to be able to put this particular snowflake back in the cumulonimbus. Just don't name weather after other weather. And this has been almost literally Old Man Yells at Cloud. And now, remembrances of things Trump. A few days after Republicans registered losses in the midterm election, CNN reporter Jim Acosta asked President Trump a question the president didn't like. So the president said so, feuded with him a little, and gestured for a White House aide to grab the microphone away from Acosta. So typical Trump versus the press squabbling that improves each one's standing among their specific audiences. But then White House spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders shared... A clip of the interaction, which was digitally manipulated to exaggerate the moment when Acosta used his hand to shield the microphone from the aide trying to take it. The Washington Post headline the next day was straightforward. White House shares doctored video to support punishment of journalist Jim Acosta. The punishment was he had his press credentials revoked. Asked about this fact that the video first shared by Paul Joseph Watson, who cut his teeth making conspiracy theory videos on Alex Jones's Infowars, was in fact, in fact, slowed down and exaggerated, the president said this. Nobody manipulated it. Give me a break. See, that's just dishonest reporting. All that is, is a close up. See, that's just, that is just dishonest reporting. I watched that. I heard that last night. They made it close up. They showed it close up. And he was not nice to that young woman. I don't hold him for that because it wasn't overly, you know, horrible. But it was, but all that was, when you say doctor, you're a dishonest guy because it wasn't doctored. They gave a close-up view. That's not doctoring. In fact, it was manipulated. And Acosta did get his press credentials back. And he go on to write a best-selling book about his tussles with the president. And Paul Joseph Watson's Twitter feed, Today, reposted a story titled Fauci Wants Christmas Cancelled. This has been Remembrances of Fizz Trump. On the show today, I spill about an AOC interview that included a good idea and a couple confusing ones to me. But first, Mabel's a yellow lab, Olive's a black lab. Their human companion is the Scottish broadcaster, sports broadcaster, Andrew Cotter. He's done Wimbledon, he's done major golfing events. But a few weeks into the pandemic, all of Andrew Cotter's work had dried up. But the dogs were there, staring, wagging, eating, licking, and sitting in bogs. This, thought Cotter, could be the source of the most brilliant commentary ever. I'm just saying that
1: we all have to do our bit and there are plenty of jobs that you could be doing around the house. Well, official food taster's not a job, and I'm left doing everything while you two just eat or sleep or mess about. And what about you? Bed quality examiner. Again, not a job. It's not. Just give me a hand and get me the Phillips head screwdriver. No, that's not it. That's not even close to being it. Yes, it's great, the noises
0: it makes, but I can't turn screws with a Christmas pudding. And so Cotter's descriptions of the sporting lives of these two lazy but lovable beasts took flight. Millions of views later, the dogs are celebrities. Cotter is known as a YouTube sensation, and of course, there's a book deal, and the greatest plum of all, an interview on the gist. The most thorough breakdown of the philosophy and construction of charming dog videos with the author of Olive, Mabel, and Me, Life and Adventures with Two Very Good Dogs. Andrew Cotter, up next. Andrew Cotter is an accomplished broadcaster of sports. He would say sport since he is based in the UK, but you probably don't know him for that. I don't know. Maybe you listen to overseas feeds of the Six Nations Championship and you do. If you do know Andrew Cotter, it is because he has been filming vignettes with his two dogs and they have gone, here's a phrase I just learned, mega Andrew Cotter is the author of olive mabel and me he's the me the dogs are olive and mabel thanks for coming on andrew
1: hey uh, my pleasure mike how are you i'm well how are you forget you
0: how are olive and mabel
1: i'm very well <laughs> they are super well they are uh megavi well they are i like the way you describe those vignettes as well that's the best description for them because uh the videos the megavi was it megavi you said or hypervi? megavi yes megavi uh, the ones that went mega-vi were, uh, it's viral for the non-kids out there, um, they were the ones that were parody commentary. So parody me being a sports announcer, as you would call them over in America. Um, me doing commentary on my dogs, eating breakfast or fighting over a bone or, the, or just out on a walk doing absolutely bugger all. But then I moved on to do these little vignettes. So I had a parody, not a parody, I had them in a, doing a Zoom meeting and then I had them doing online dating and I had them building flat pack furniture. This is basically because um, I've had no work this year uh, in terms of sports broadcasting because it all disappeared. I mean, that's how it started.
0: What was the first video that you did? And was that the first one to go viral?
1: Yeah, so the first one I did was back at the start of March, which was them both the racing to eat breakfast and me commentating on that that particular race, and that went viral. And you know, you know, something has happened, something odd has happened within seconds of pressing send. It just took off, and so that's had on Twitter, you know, about ten or twelve. I think it might be twelve million views now. Anyway, overall, it's probably had about twelve or thirteen. Uh, no, more than that, actually, because on, on YouTube it had quite a few views as well. So, anyway, plenty of views. Um, and then, you know, the second one was the the Game of Bones one with them just fighting over a bone or playing. You know. And that one, the interesting one about that, that went double. I mean, that's, you know, gone way over 20 million now. But the interesting one about that is, um, so a viral video suddenly gets appreciation from big accounts and big names and they all get on board with it. And then it sort of just does its thing and, and simmers for a few months and it keeps on racking up the views, but it's kind of had its big peak. And then suddenly, two weeks ago, Dan Scavino Jr., you know, you, you'll know him, a deputy White House chief of staff. Um, he, he took the video and he didn't credit me at all, which is something that actually bugs me a little bit when you've actually made something and whatever it might be. Anyway, so he took That's the video. kind of
0: typical of the Trump administration, but go ahead. And
1: he used it as an allegory for... Um, for Trump waiting for Biden, Biden over-celebrating. So basically in this video, if people haven't seen it, all of my black Labrador has got the rubber bone and she's toying with it and enjoying it, blah 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 and Mabel's just waiting, waiting, waiting and Mabel gets it in the end. So he presented this as this allegory for Trump. Poor old Mabel, my lovely hopeless younger Labrador, the yellow one, she's wait- she's supposed to be Trump in this and then Olive is Biden. And then it got passed on by James Woods the actor who I didn't realise until this point has reasonably right-wing leaning tendencies as well so he passed uh, it i would
0: on. i would question i would question the word reasonably well <laughs> right, reasonably is, a, is just a
1: quantifier no there's nothing reasonable about it but it's a quantifier <laughs> in terms of i just like to sort of downplay it slightly for uh comedic <laughs> yes. effect but anyway he um he passes it on and so suddenly everybody thinks everybody in the american right thinks i've made these videos as some sort of allegory for you know so i was oh. getting i was suddenly getting huge numbers of um of american right wingers starting to follow me they may they may have gone by. Now, when they, uh, I mean, I've kept politics out of it, and I do like to keep politics out of the Olive and Mabel thing because they are—it's it, the charm of the escape from the human nonsense world that we have at the moment and all the unpleasantness. So just watch these two dogs and have a laugh at these vignettes, these sketches for a bit, but just forget about everything else. But anybody who knows me knows that I would not want them to be appropriated by a Trump regime.
0: It's so funny because I didn't realize that people would watch them and think anything other than you did them for the reasons you did them. And maybe someone was riffing on them either in parody or pastiche, but, it's interesting to me that you're you're saying that many people just think you went out and you said, "Okay, now we need to cast a Trump character." Oh, this one has similar colored. This one has similar coloring. Yeah, and you That's, did it with that in mind. That's crazy. I know. It's not the uh, craziest thing that they believe, but crazy.
1: No, but the, but the whole the whole year has been crazy in terms of Olive and Mabel. Honestly, when when videos go viral, you are opening the world, opening yourself up to the world of craziness, and so any number of offers to commentate on ads, you know commentate on yogurt commentate on on guinea pigs doing karate commentate on rental cars being cleaned commentate on o- online shopping so I stopped that and nipped that in I didn't do any of them I did uh, one tourism ad for uh, a tourism body down in Australia commentating on penguins because that was actually quite funny but there were any number of things which she turned down but suddenly when people see something exploding in numbers they think right I'm gonna try and hop on board with this and it's nice it's nice to be offered things you know and I wasn't working for a, for eight months I had no work but you, you've got Got to. I didn't want to be the funny joke commentator, and I also very much didn't want to be seen to be cashing in on my dogs. I like, again, the whole thing is just an escape from all man-made mm. things. Just watch these dogs for a bit and have a laugh at their at their nonsense, but n- nothing more than that.
0: Is the method for you to commentate? As the action is happening, or do you uh-huh. take them and then do post-production? <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Ah, ah, the mysteries. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, I, well, well. the first three, which were commentaries, so they were all pretty much done, and I say pretty much, they were all pretty much done as you see them. I commentated as it was happening, but then thought I can tighten that up a little bit. So yeah, there's a little bit of post-production in them, but not much. But then you move on, obviously, to doing the Zoom meeting, or doing the online dating, or doing building <laughs> yeah. flatback furniture, or, or trick-or-treat, you know, Halloween And I made a documentary as well, a mockumentary behind the scenes with Olive and Mabel, which is my favourite video of them all, actually, because of the amount of... I thought sort of the, the creative nonsense that had got into it. But um, so that those all involve a huge amount more in terms of post-production and timing and scripting and whatever it might be. So, um, yeah, but the, but the really heavily produced ones will never get the same number of views that the very natural and one take or one and a half take early ones got. So it's uh, it's an interesting lesson for us all.
0: Obviously, there appealing because people like dogs and you're a professional and the resonance of uh, commenting on sport uh, very much applies until it doesn't. And that's where comedy lives. But I also think that it's appealing in terms of sport or you know, a race to eat a dish or the game of bones because the two dogs are different colors yeah. and that's exactly like how uniforms or you would call them kits work in sport and in fact the two colors are one's like a home and one's in a way yeah, it's yeah. very luckily very luckily applies to the whenever you layer two different genres on top of each other and there are slight discordances therein lies at least the potential for comedy
1: well exactly and with the different colors of their strips of their fur then, then you have got different personalities as well and right. I think in the two, in in any comedic double act, it's like Laurel and Hardy. they although in the end, actually they're quite similar in that they're both fairly net. But one of them pretends to be or thinks that he is slightly uh, more qualified and sensible and intelligent than the other one. You know it turns out that both of them are actually pretty dim butt and and hapless. But, Olive is definitely the one who's... She's got a different personality to Mabel. So when you get that juxtaposition and all that, all that contrast in personalities, then it really it makes for even better humour. If they were both black Labradors and if they both had exactly the same personality, then you're right, it wouldn't quite work as well. And I, therefore, sort of slightly tweak. I just turn up the the, the, the personalities a little bit. I exaggerate. their caricatures slightly of their personalities. But they are pretty much true to what you see there. Mabel is lovable and simple and wagging her tail constantly and her face is just one of utter um, beautiful dimness but um, and and Olive is just slightly more distant and uh, I say slightly more aloof but uh, has her idiotic moments as well and that's why in, in the online dating one I loved all the fact that Olive has got onto online dating and made up all these these lies and she looks fairly sort of cold about it and yeah fair enough i made up some lies what are you going to do about it and then mabel mabel at the end is just wagging her tail saying like i just want to be loved to be honest
0: and mabel does look up to olive and that is the uh relationship in age too
1: that is the dynamic yeah mabel's mabel's fourth birthday is uh is very soon and uh mabel has just turned eight so four years between them and she absolutely worships mabel worships Olive. And, you know, that's one of the things about the book was that I was pleased with is the reaction I've had from because it's been out for a while in the UK, not quite so long in the in the US is that you know people have come back and said, you know, I wasn't sure wh- what to expect from the book or whether I was going to like it because you know, I like the videos, but how do you transpose that humour from and, you know, audiovisual humour into the books? And they said, but this, honestly, it's as, it's as good as the videos. And that's the only hard sell bit I'm going to do on this podcast <laughs> is that if you like the videos, people, hop on board with the book and just uh, join me uh, for a romp through the world of dogs.
0: The sport that the book most reminds me of is, well, we, I would say baseball, but maybe you've uh, (laughs) announced some cricket, but a sport where there's a lot of time in between plays and there's not so much urgency. Like if it's an up and down sport, basketball, hockey, rugby, you're always talking, you have to be on the action. But once you have a little time to breathe, you can make asides, you could say, you know, I poured myself a cup of ambition instead of a cup of coffee. (laughs) Like whatever strikes you as being interesting in the moment, we're going along for the ride because we've all signed up for a somewhat languorous journey
1: yeah i think it's quite a nice escape again you know we, we've i've all i've tried to escape into in the world of my dogs this year you know that's what we've all tried to do if you've got dogs you've got pets or if you've got anything which is in any way normal you've tried to cling to that this year and say look i just want to escape from this and and the book's a bit of an escape it's an escape into the world of dogs it's an escape into the mountains as well but you're absolutely right it's um You know the the, so the sports I commentate on the main ones would be rugby and athletics or track and field, uh, tennis. And golf. And golf is, as you said, very much golf commentary is very much like doing baseball commentary or cricket commentary. Whereas it it is a long drawn out sport where you have time to just develop some stories and some whimsy and observation. And it's sort of observation that the, the observational humour of the hopefully of the book is there because it just sort of you know it's a n it's a, a nice comforting escape. You just sit there and you escape into that world of dogs and there will be some chuckles along the way, but it's not a fast paced thriller maybe i should have done that olive and mabel solving <laughs> whatever crime i don't know it's some sort of dan brown-esque thing that will just sell millions
0: <laughs> it turns out you were the main character all yeah. along olive was the yeah. key and the chalice Ma-
1: mabel takes off her mask and she's actually a black labrador underneath and uh or i don't miss she's a cat that's the that's the twist oh my god there we are it's a cat underneath and she's taking us all for a ride
0: so I know that you did the uh, equivalent of the behind the music. You did the four minute uh, film where you talked about <laughs> the workings, the workings of your dynamic. You revealed there that Mabel, no Olive, had the drinking problem. No, no, Mabel's yeah. got the drink problem. Mabel, she's still, and Mabel's she doesn't
1: have it anymore. Thankfully, she went into the priory oh. uh, to get sorted out. Here, did a bit of rehab, and she's all right. But um, see, I, I like that. I like, I, I like having through Olive and Mabel examined. Um, popular culture and i mean i remember the simpsons once did behind the laughter an episode you know when the simpsons was still <laughs> yeah. really really good and it was and so it was a it's, it was kind of a bit of that really you know these are the this is the nonsense i watched the simpsons and family guy and american dad and you know the, uh, any number of other gr- <laughs> i was going to say great comedies but these are you know people you know, look down on them. their cartoons they're they're just brilliant so it's um i don't know but i like to you know, examine the media and any aspect of human life, but also popular culture through Olive and Mabel. So putting them into those, that's what the Zoom call was about. That's what online dating was about. It's situations that we would all recognize, but two Labradors being in them instead.
0: But my my question was, in sincerity, not the uh, fiction of that uh, video that you put up, in sincerity, has any of this, if you really think hard about it, affected them at all in any way that you could discern?
1: No, lockdown this year has affected them in that, Uh you know, they are slightly more clingy, but they have no idea. They do get stopped on walks now and people take photos with them, um, but they have no idea at all. We've been in uh, bookshops, you know, doing signings. And, you know, when we we actually did an appearance at the Cheltenham Literary Festival, a big literary festival over here, and we were on stage at this lovely theatre in Cheltenham, and they only allowed 100 people in because of the social distancing measures. But then afterwards, we came out the stage door me with the two dogs and there were... You know, 40 people waiting there going, Olive and Mabel, Olive and Mabel. Oh, can I get a photo? Can I get it? So, um, but they, I think, I think Olive in particular thinks, well, I deserve this because I'm, I'm amazing. But she doesn't realize what it's for. She just thinks that, yeah, everybody loves me. That's because I am awesome. Uh, and Mabel just gets slightly <laughs> nervous because she thinks, why are all these people making so much noise? But um, have they be, do they realize anything about what's going on? No, no, they don't. And if they did, they would just adapt to it as Labradors do and get on with it and then ask for some food.
0: Andrew Cotter is the author of Olive, Mabel, and Me. He is also the owner of two of those characters, the collaborator with, I should say, (laughs) Life and Adventures with Two Very Good Dogs. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Mike, thank you very much. And now the spiel. The soon-to-be sophomore representative from the Bronx and Queens, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, was interviewed by Jeremy Scahill on The Intercept podcast. Now, I know there is a counterargument to the idea that AOC is a very powerful force within democratic circles. She says it too. You know... I don't know if a soon-to-be sophomore legislator from Queens has as much power as you say she does, or she'll demure and say, well, you're giving me way too much credit, especially when the right holds her up as emblematic of the whole party. But you know, power comes in many forms, titular power of the purse and power of persuasion. So if you want to say, look, I doubt one Congresswoman from Queens has so much sway, that sounds good. But if you said... Now, I don't know if a politician with more Twitter followers than Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi combined has sway. I would say, yeah, she has sway, important sway. She also gets to areas beyond Twitter that they don't even know exist. Yeah, I'm thinking of Twitch. So AOC was on the record as saying Chuck and Nancy should have swayed or sashayed outside the Democratic leadership positions a long time ago. Isn't this grounds, though, to take a stand and say, no, I'm sorry, Nancy Pelosi should not be the speaker and Chuck Schumer should not be the leader?
2: Well, you know, I do think that we need new leadership.
0: And if that was too subtle for you... Are you ready to say Pelosi and Schumer need to go? I mean, I I,
2: I think so. AOC
0: says it should not be her, it should be someone else. She says, though... The leadership, the current leadership, didn't groom the next generation of leaders. It's a common complaint, happens a lot. But let's also note that of the representatives in AOC's specific coalition, the Justice Democrats, almost all are just in Congress or were just elected a couple years ago, like Kahana and Pramila Jayapal. There is one Justice Democrat who's been in Congress earlier than 2017. Raul Grijalva of Arizona. So AOC is of the opinion that Nancy Pelosi does not allow enough progressive votes to come to the floor and does not appoint enough progressive members to key roles. AOC generally, and I think genuinely believes that the only reason more Democratic voters don't hold her beliefs is that the free expression of those beliefs is being suppressed by the media and by other Democrats, centrist Democrats. She has a theory of the electorate, that it is not that voters disagree with her, it's that they just don't yet agree with her. That is kind of motivating. It's optimistic. I can see why an activist would want to think that way. It also, I believe, is bad policy or a bad tactic for a politician to take if that politician really wants to win. I would say if you have a realistic view of the electorate. Or let's just say if you're inclined to believe what voters say they believe instead of believing what voters just could believe if only, uh, if you're a if you're, uh, let's just take the voters at their word type, you're probably going to make better decisions about those voters. AOC is a somewhat unfalsifiable belief system. This is why we call such people true believers. I'm not here to cast dispersions or slap a label on someone, a true believer probably would get offended and consider that a bit of a pejorative. They would just say, no, I have deep convictions. By the way, I happen to be right. And maybe they are right. I'll give you an example of how all this works or doesn't work. The question is, why do so many, why in the last election did so many people criticize socialists? And the easy answer is, and this is according to asking people why they do it, they say, we don't like socialism, all right? The counter-response from a socialist is something like they just don't understand socialism or they just they just haven't learned what real socialism is or the socialism they're thinking about isn't the socialism that I'm peddling unless it is, in which case they might be immoral or racist. So here is AOC talking about criticism of socialists. She calls such criticism red-baiting.
2: When Democrats start to engage in this red-baiting And they engage in this, you know, oh, these protesters are gentrifiers or they're white people, you know, essentially erasing all left activism of color uh, in the United States. They may not know it, or maybe they do know it, but they are also participating in a very ugly legacy of white supremacy. Well, wait,
0: wait, wait, wait. When activists, meaning socialists, are criticized as gentrifiers, you're saying They're white, maybe rich and white. She also literally said, you're white. And then she said that that criticism, criticizing people or dismissing people for being white is engaging in white supremacy, the white supremacy of calling out white supremacy. I understand why she has to say this white supremacy is a very salient charge within her circle. And she is sensitive to the charge that say, oh, all those Portland protesters, all these Bernie backers, you know, they're all white. They don't really speak for people of color. And one of the few ways to counter the charge of white supremacy is to lob the charge of white supremacy. It's not illogical, by the way. It's not like just because she says that you can't take her at her word. Here's how it might work. If there are BIPOC activists who are being, I will use the lingo, erased with the charge, ignore them, they're white, which could be going on, those BIPOC activists are having an injustice done to them and an injustice done to people of color is an example of white supremacy, especially if it's a white person doing the dismissing. But the fact that the whole argument, oh, dismiss these Bernie people, they're just gentrifiers, the original dismissal of them might not be as effective if the left overall didn't default to and concede to accusations of white supremacy so often. That's a little bit of a quibble. I really just was taken by and thought a lot about this. This statement is her political thesis.
2: It's not just elected Democrats, but it also seems like the Democratic electorate seems to believe that conservative Democrats are the ones that win. And it's almost as though our electorate is tricking itself. You know, it's like we all know that we want something different, but we're afraid, we're so afraid of losing, or at least we're told that if we indulge what we want, we're going to lose. Think about that. Think
0: about believing that. It's not tactical, I don't think. I think that's what she genuinely believes. The voters have tricked themselves into thinking something And that thing is a thing that she disagrees with. By the way, what's the difference between tricking yourself into thinking something and just thinking something? Maybe all thinking is a trick. I think it's just a way not to grapple with or accept the fact that they disagree with you. Look, I know not everyone agrees with me, but I think AR-15s should be banned. I say that. I don't think people like AR-15s have tricked themselves into liking it. I think they disagree with me. So try to make the case that will convince some or convince enough people to ban AR-15s. Got it? Or here's another one from the other side of the aisle. Look, I know not everyone agrees with me, not even most Democrats, but we literally can take a large percentage of the funding to the police, take it away and it'll still work. And I'll explain how. And that's fine, I say. That's a good debate. But I don't believe that you really disagree with me. I only believe that you've tricked yourself into that disagreement or the more straightforward phrase. And I'm sure it's really annoying when you hear this in your own life. You don't really believe that, do you? Ever been told that? I know what your answer is. Your answer is, my God, by pointing it out, you've, you've made me realize I don't believe that. No, the answer is always, yeah, I believe that. Who are you to tell me I don't? Of course, if you're saying you don't really believe that, that's the answer you'll get. If you're saying to your like-minded group, you know, they don't really believe that, you'll probably get nods. Now, here's the thing and here's the problem. If you're right that the people you disagree with don't really hold those disagreements, they've tricked themselves into having those disagreements, there's not much of a tactical difference that you should engage in versus what I, how I would interpret people who disagree with me's thoughts that they actually disagree with me. I would just try to argue them off their case or present my case or establish a bigger coalition so that their opinions don't matter. So arguing with someone who disagrees with you and arguing with someone who's tricked themselves into disagreeing with you, there should be no difference in that. But you know, I can't really tell here who is the deluded and who is the deluder. AOC is like I said, she's smart. She's talented. She has the ability to change a lot of minds. I'm just not sure if she has the right mindset to do so. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly could listen to Andrew Cotter read the Glasgow phone book. Only that would be a huge gaff because Andrew Cotter is from Dundee and there is bad blood between the Dundonians and the Glaswegians. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He yearns to break free of the good dog, bad dog dyad. And maybe we should just realize within dogs, there is a goodness but also a badness, like the time they swallow Grandma's pillow. Bad dog, bad, bad dog, but with the potential for redemption. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She thinks Cotter maybe should have gone to prompt book sales, goose book sales, something like Andrew Cotter and the Sorcerer's Bone, Andrew Cotter and the Deathly Howlows, Andrew Cotter and the Half-Bloodhound Prince, maybe, you know, fool a couple people. The gist. Here's my pitch. It's from the dog's perspective about when the owner comes home. Welcome back, Cotter. Featuring the sweat dogs, Leif, Lachlan, Rory, and the Puerto Rican Scotsman, Juan McGregor. oom du and thanks for listening.